Good morning, afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the All That Jazz Podcast. I'm your host, Matash, and today I have with me Karen M. Bryson. And we're going to talk about writing, her writing muse, why she writes books, why she writes screenplays, and her success with writing books and screenplays. Her being a writer, um, uh, her feelings about the 80s, about the 80s movies, 80s bands, uh, her getting a PhD in human science, her noticing a drop in critical thinking and attention span in students in the last 16 years that she was working at the university. Ooh, very interesting and sad. We're gonna talk about we're gonna talk about deinstitutionalization, if I can pronounce it, <laughs> of the mentally ill in the 80s and we're gonna talk about the decline of the western civilization and the best period of america this and much more in today's podcast sit back relax and enjoy the podcast Welcome to the new episode of All That Jazz. I'm your host, Matias, and I have with me Dr. Karen M. Bryson. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Thank you for being on. And you are not only a podcaster, a professor, and an author, but I uh, just learned that you write screenplays, feature screenplays. Oh, let's, let's go there, because that's... I do like movies, and particularly, I like the 80s movies and I feel like a lot of heart is missing from movies nowadays they're 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 cynical in some way and they're um okay here's somebody coming up okay <laughs> let's just continue on um hold on mama um so yeah so what kind of features did you write um, I've written a large variety of different kinds of movies when I, or that I hope to be movies someday, scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm the author of over 50 novels. Um, so a number of them I have adapted from my own novels. Um, and those would primarily be uh, romance, romantic comedy um, in that genre. Mm-hmm. But I've also written horror, I've written thriller, I've written mystery and suspense. Uh, science fiction. I have a co-writer that I write science fiction with. Um, she and I have written a number of things together. Right. Um, I've I've placed. I've won and placed in screenwriting contests. Um, I've also done TV pilots. Um, my okay. most recent TV pilot that I wrote is called Menopause Bites, and it's about a menopausal vampire hunter. Wow. So, horror. That's more horror comedy. Right. At, I've written a lot of different things. I've also um, written uh, for an animation. Uh, The Incredibly Awesome Adventures of Puggy Liddell was based on a graphic novel that I wrote for kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And that I'm hoping someday someone will turn it into an animated script for kids, uh, an animated movie for kids. So I have a wide variety. Um, Biopics, I've written three biopics um, of different people. And this so, is like biopics based on real people that you didn't based on adapt. Real people, yeah. Mm. One was uh, a female football coach, and she coached a junior high football team um, to a, a league championship. Okay. Uh, and it was an all-female 
football coaching staff. So mm. you were coaching a predominantly male team, which was interesting really? um, at that time. I, I would have yeah. I would have thought this would have been picked up by now already. I know. It's really hard. It's very competitive. So, mm. you know, I, I just chug along and get my stuff out there as much as I can. Put them into screenwriting contests. Like I said, I've gotten a lot of um, recognition in screenwriting contests. I've actually had a script option by a production company and I've sold another script to a production company. Oh, so you've sold, but you've not, it's not been made yet. Yeah, they've not been made yet. You got to get funding and that takes time. But what are those options like? Or did they probably pay all right? They can be. Um, mm. It just depends on how much money the production company has to put forward um, right. you know, toward your project. So. Right. And, and, and I imagine some of them are based on if the movie is made, then you, you make probably more, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So then up front, they probably pay just a, a little change and then... If they make the movie, then they pay a lot more. Exactly. Yep. Oh, you got it. That's how that, it works. Yeah, I would have th- I would have thought so because it makes more sense that way. But uh, and but it also would feel good if something that you wrote would would be made uh, into a movie. Do you think it's Do you think it's like a lot of it is connection, or do you think it's just the material the the movies that are being made nowadays are. Uh, are different than what you're writing? So yes, connections have a huge part of it. You mm. need to be able to know people to pitch to. You have to um, have those uh, opportunities for access to people who can ma- make movies, to get movies made. If you're not the type of person who wants to make movies yourself, because you know there are men and women who are fil- true filmmakers who write and direct and produce yeah. their own stuff. Um, you know, Kevin Smith, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He's yeah. I, I, I wouldn't think you would know Kevin Smith. Yeah, no, I not a big fan of his work, but I do know him. He used to be a really big guy, but I think he lost a lot of weight. Yeah. He looks very different, like a different person. Yeah. Some, yeah. Sometimes I think with these people that they, they completely change It's almost like, it's almost like they were they were endearing when they were before with the way they looked and now they look like well this is this is somebody more serious (laughs) i don't know why i don't know why i don't think his personality has changed to be more serious but (laughs) yeah yeah um so um did you start writing really young like because you obviously wrote a lot of books like 50 books so um yeah it's kind of a cliche like every if i feel like every writer says oh i started writing when i was a kid and i always wanted to be a writer i think every writer says that right so it's kind of a cliche but i truly did um start writing when i was very young and Mm. i've been writing ever since but as far as uh writing something that i felt was good enough for publication probably has been in the last uh 10 to 15 years really that I've been serious about, you know, getting stuff out there. What does it mean um, serious? That you have like invest more time into it, more editing? uh, Everything. The first thing is um, getting the training that you need to really be a good writer, to invest the time that it takes. You know, they say you have to put in 10,000 hours to be really good at something. So investing that time, writing every day, 
um, there, we have a thing called National Novel Writing Month. And I don't know if you're familiar with what that is, but basically in November of every year, writers can join this um, contest uh, that they challenge themselves to write a novel in a month. So in 2012, I decided I was going to join that contest. And so I did it. I wrote a novel in a month. And then I just continued doing that. And I did it for three years straight. So that ended up being 36 novels. Wow. You, you caught the bug right there in 2012. And then the world didn't end in 2012 and you continued on writing. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Did you ever write a story about the world ending in 2012? In 2012? <laughs> <laughs> no, back then I was on the opposite spectrum writing very sappy romance novels. So, you know, I mean, definitely, definitely wasn't into the disaster stuff at that point. But <laughs> oh, but you did write the disaster later on. I, I don't really like disaster type thing necessarily. I do okay. love dystopian though. Like after the disaster happens, right? Okay. you know, and the world's in a shambles. I love dystopian uh, stuff, but the, the actual happening of the disaster kind of freaks me out. Right. Um, like disaster movies, I find terrifying. Those giant waves or the big meteors oh. terrify me. Maybe. Uh, so yeah. Maybe it's a I wouldn't go toward life. the disaster, but the aftermath of, you know, the world being destroyed and people surviving Mad Max world. I love that. Maybe, uh, maybe Karen, you were in a past life. You, there was some happening and you were, you were involved in the, in the French revolution. Maybe it ended sadly. And you were like, no, I don't want, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's right. Um, I want to return back to movies because I, I, I mentioned something earlier. The Have you noticed with the movies, obviously, because I watched a lot of 80, 80 movies and they're, they're very different than the 90s and the, especially the, the 2010s movies, which are cynical in some way and uh, disparaging to some people. And it's very different dialogue as well. But what do you find? is the reason for this is there a cultural change also in us because you experienced that from the 80s till now i it, that's an excellent question and uh we could probably dig a little deeper into mm. that but i feel like there were in the 80s a lot of feel-good movies and i noticed my husband and i will go back to watching those movies instead yeah. rather than watching new releases a lot of times because we can't find things that we connect with on that emotional level that we want to have that emotional experience and it is difficult to find movies that make you feel make you feel good and and even if it's not necessarily a happy movie but just give you that emotional experience that isn't depressing right um, right yeah i think a lot I, of it is I, written by millennials that are are just cynical about the world and they have connections in the industry and they're whiz kids and they write these, um, what they think is amazing scripts and, but they're all sarcastic, cynical, a lot of, okay, a lot of them, not, not all, not all, but a lot of them are that way. While in the eighties you had like, even if you had a movie like Goonies, which was kind of scary, but it had a lot of heart. There was, there was yeah. a genuine like romance. Uh, well, you can call it that. And then, you know, stuff like that or um back to the future the even the music back then 
um, was so much better. <laughs> what is it about I love that. I love that you said movies with heart because yeah. that's the type of thing that I love to write. I love to write stories with heart. Um, and that's definitely missing in a lot of what we see today. The other thing too, that people are moving away from movies is what I call the Netflix syndrome where people will watch streaming shows and their preferences for that long format. Yeah. So they'll want to watch, you know, like a Queen's Gambit type thing where it's, um, you know, six or seven or eight um, episodes of a mini series or mm -hmm. a limited series and watch out for eight hours rather than just watching a 90 minute movie, their preferences for a longer format. Yeah. Or get into a show that's five years and sit there on a weekend and watch five years worth of a TV show rather than an hour and a half movie. So yeah. I think people are It's doing a lot that deeper. Movie. I mean, it's a lot more time and they don't want, cause like uh, movies, like you have to get, um, it's almost like uh, you're, you're starting a, a long-term relationship that's going to end in a very short notice while a series is like a long-term relationship that's going to last for at least a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what it is. And even though a lot of people have uh, short attention spans now, they also like love to be distracted. So I think series provides that kind of uh, uh, thing. Um, like, um, as far as movies with heart, I watched a, like, I, I've seen movies that have terrible writing, terrible acting, terrible production, but somehow they have heart. And I feel like that's their redeeming value. And, uh, and then you have movies about Batman that have excellent everything, but they're lacking, like the newest Batman. Have you seen the, uh, what's his name? Christopher Nolan's Batman's. Have you seen those? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're very kind of darkish and very like, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. and Batman has such a really incredibly deep voice and is so the city is dark, you know. The yeah, for me, Christopher Nolan's movies are about a half hour to 40 minutes too long. I feel like he just goes, and I found that with most of his movies. He goes a little bit too long. I feel like they should end and then they keep going for another 40 minutes. Yeah. I, I would say his best movie is probably Interstellar. Have you seen that? Uh, they go into space and there's a black yeah. hole and all that. Yeah. Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So how did you then um, go into the profession of being a professor? Wow, that's a long question. Yes. So um, originally, uh, when I was a young person, I got my master's degree in mental health counseling with the intention of being a mental health counselor. Mm. And when I actually went into the profession, I found it extremely uh, emotionally challenging and difficult Ooh. for the type of person that I am. Um, and I just met up with a lot of people who were so broken and there was nothing I could really do to fix them. And it, it was, it was uh, demoralizing in a way. And I started to feel like I was getting a skewed view of the world. I thought every, 
you feel like every person on you meet on the street then has some kind of emotional trauma, you know, that, they probably do, <laughs> but, I, but they I hide it. To, I don't want to be that, the you know, that be the forefront in my mind, you know, yeah. oh, what's their emotional trauma? Were they molested? You know, because I, the situation where I was working, it was like six or seven people a day. I would be dealing with people who had trauma from being molested. I was like, was everyone molested? Uh, it, it just got to be too overwhelming emotionally for me. Um, so I wondered what, it, what other things could I do, um, you know, with, as a profession. So I actually started working at a university um, as uh, an advisor, uh, like an academic advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved that. I loved the university setting. Um, and so that just led to me thinking to myself, I've always loved school. I've always loved academics. Um, you know, if I could study and do research and read all day, it would be <laughs> the ideal profession. Yeah. Um, so I said, why not? Why not be a professor? I could spend the rest of my life at a university. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, that's so it. I, yeah, I started on that pathway. Uh, I was how old? 26, I think, at that point, when I said to myself, I'm going to start, um, you know, toward a degree to getting a PhD. Now, it was a little different if I would have gone right out of, so I was 21 when I finished my bachelor's degree and 23 when I got my master, my first master's degree. Um, and then I worked for a few years, as I said, um, in the mental health profession. And then mm-hmm. um, I started working at the university and started, decided to go back to school. So from that point, because I was working full-time and going to school, it took a longer than it would have if I was just going to school. So right, right. it took about a decade for me to finish my doctorate. Um, P- which was so a, you have a PhD in psychology. I have a PhD in human science. Okay. Human science. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. What, what is that? Sounds very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's a more broad based degree, although I took a, a lot of psychology classes and I'm actually a professor of psychology and human services. Mm-hmm. So it's a more broad degree. My undergraduate degrees were in psychology and social services. So I've always had that more wide spectrum of it being, um, so it, it enca- encapsulates psychology with human services, social services, and also sociology, anthropology, those areas. So it's Mm -hmm. a more broad, broad degree, which is excellent for me because at the school where I teach, I predominantly teach liberal arts classes. So, you know, we were talking uh, at our last meeting about some of the classes that I teach, which are um, more general liberal arts classes. Right. So I work with our students when they first come in, I teach a class called writing and critical thinking to prepare them to um, be able to write and do critical thinking at a university level. So that class really prepares them to do that and also to immerse them in the liberal arts to give them an understanding of what the liberal arts are and why they're important. And then that the last class that I teach when they're getting ready to graduate is called Global Issues in the Liberal Arts. Mm-hmm. And that's a class that really um, helps them to see their what they learned and their education and also themselves in the world as a citizen of the global world yeah i feel like in some ways this is this is my crazy idea but i feel like in some ways 
that some people would be well served if, if they went to North Korea for a month and lived like the North Koreans. And uh, because it would just show that the freedoms that we enjoy, not only in America, but all across the West is, is such a great gift that in North Korea, they have one channel and that only operates, I think a few hours every day and it's just propaganda. And, and then you, you eat the same stuff, you're probably malnourished and, uh, and if you live out in the village, you don't even have a washing machine, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's crazy, you know? Yeah. It, it does give you an appreciation. Travel definitely gives you an appreciation of yeah. um, the situation where you're, where you're in um, being in a highly industrialized, like we are in the U S and highly industrialized Western country. Right. Um, how, how is uh, critical thinking with students? How do you generally find them to, to be with that? It's, it's difficult in the, so I started teaching 16 years ago at the university. Mm. Um, so I've been a professor now for 16 years. And even in that 16 year period of time, I've seen a drop in people's ability to think critically. And, every and, year, every year. Yeah, and I feel like it's in direct proportion to the rise of social media. So people don't necessarily, well, we, who reads a newspaper anymore? People don't even get their news. A lot of people don't get their news from, from what I would call reputable news sources. They get their news on Twitter and Facebook. And, and, they're, yeah. and how, how do they distinguish between what's real and what's something that somebody made up and is you know, spreading like it's actual news? They don't look further than the headline. Hmm. They don't investigate. They don't look to see who wrote it. Are they an expert in the field? You know, it, is this something that's biased for a certain reason in a certain way for a certain cause? Right. Well, I I, I would say I I I haven't really read much. Uh, I read read books, but I don't read much uh, newspapers for some reason because I feel like either they're biased one way or another. Um, and that's why it's a good idea to read a variety mm. of sources right right so if you feel like I, I i'm and i'm not as familiar with the newspapers um where you are in the uk as i should be but here in the united states you know we have left-leaning papers and right-leaning papers so you know take one from one side and one from the other side and get a foreign source and look at those three and, you know, take one example of one thing that happened that week, look at the right-leaning source, look at the left-leaning source, look at a foreign source. Right. And then from those three articles of that same incident, you know, you can get a good idea after reading three different sources from three different points of view, maybe what was the truth in that. Okay. So, so is that what you do? You read, let's say you read the New York times and then you read, um, uh, the Wall Street Journal, and then something else? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Look at Al Jazeera. If you want something that's a different point of view, look at mm -hmm. something that Al Jazeera put out. You know, look for look at something from the UK or from Canada or, you know, another point of view, another perspective, another country or culture. What are yeah. they saying? It's, it's great to look at, especially for US news, to look at the... Um, Foreign ones? How it's being reported from the foreign press. Oh, yeah. Because it's a completely different perspective of those incidents than we get in our country. 
Yeah. Um, I do think, do you think there is, there is, uh, since we're going down this path, let, let's go fully down. Do you think, uh, what do you think about fake news? I, I think there is such a thing as fake news based on a fake meaning that they come with a intentional um, bias that that justifies any means to its end. So they will um, invent sources and things like that. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. The, and, and people uh, have been using social media to spread false information. Mm -hmm. I, the, the term fake news is really a, a bad term because of the way it's been used. It's been weaponized in our country. Um, so what is true and what is false? What, can, what could be objectively proven? What do we know, um, you know, is the rational perspective and the rational mm. point of view, right? Yeah, I mean- Very hard. We can prove that there was not a pizza place in Washington DC where Hillary Clinton was murdering babies or whatever the propaganda was that that particular point of view was spreading. You so know there wasn't a that? pizza place, even though they mentioned pizza in the emails. There was a pizza place. There's no basement there. So mm. yeah, what they were saying about babies being murdered in the basement can objectively be proven that it's not true because that place does not have a basement. Okay. So you can do some investigation and if you see something that you think, okay, this doesn't look like it makes a lot of sense. Is mm -hmm. this real? Is this true? We can objectively say, no, it's not true. Yeah. But, but then people will say, I have, I had a guest on that would disagree with you and they would say, you know, they're, obviously they're not gonna tell you that this is gonna appear to be like that but actually they're hiding it they're hiding it there's always it's a hidden thing you know <laughs> okay <laughs> well i you know it's yeah this is a because then you get, get into a belief system about um and then you go on faith do i trust do I trust this paper or do I, you know, cause then um, it all goes back to polarization and bias. You know, they will say Washington Post is covering for Hillary and New York Times covering for Hillary and all the rest. Um, um, the the, uh, the liberals will discount anyway. So they will not believe them, but they will believe the Washington Post and vice versa. So you have, into, you have this intense strife I don't think, I think it's gotten worse, the, the political discourse since I've, um, since I've- Well, it's on both it. sides though. So, I mean, yeah. you're gonna have propaganda on either side. So you as an individual, it's interesting because, and this is just my perception of, in general of the United States. So we have a extreme polarization between the liberals and the um, conservatives, right? It, and it's a chasm that may never be be able to come together again, right? It's just deeply divided. Mm. Um, but there's propaganda on both sides of, right, of the spectrum. And people, a lot of people see it as a line with conservatives on one side and liberals on the other, but it's actually a circle, right? Mm. 
Because extremes on both sides will meet in the meet at the other end. Right, right. Yeah. When that, you go to an extreme of either side, you're not on polar opposites. You're actually meeting at the bottom. You're extremists. You're, either side becomes an extremist. Hmm. You know, this kind of reminds like Most me. people in our country are in the middle. The majority of people are just like, I want to live my life. I want to have a good salary. I want to have a yeah. house and be able to raise my kids. Really, yeah. that's the majority of people. They don't, as long as those things are happening and they feel okay about, you know, I, if I call and need the police are coming, my house is on fire, you know, the fire department's coming. They just want basic, simple things. They want to be able to go and have a pizza on Friday night and have a beer or, you know, go to the local restaurant on Saturday and go out to eat with their friends. Simple pleasures of life is what most people want, right? Right. But it's getting caught up in this, um, both sides use it, the emotional extremism to really rile people up so that they think that the other side is going to get them and is after them and, you know, which isn't true. Most people are average, the Amer average American wants the same things, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. They want the okay. same thing. They want to raise their kids. They want to have grandkids. They want to you know, have a, a nice life in the suburbs or, you know, in the city, wherever they choose to live. Mm. But then, then there's a 20% or so, or maybe 10% of the vocal minority, uh, maybe from both sides that want, um, they want power. They're not satisfied, you know, they want power. They want the power to dictate how other people live their lives. Some of That's them. That's the problem. That's mm. the problem. Yeah. So I'm, I, I'm guessing you're kind of uh, on the independent side here. I've never been place. registered, oddly, <laughs> I've never <laughs> been registered. Uh, vote. I, I've been voting since I was 18, uh, but I've always been registered as an independent. I've never been affiliated with either party. Can I ask, did, did, were you able to vote in the 80s? Yeah. Yeah, I'm that so, I mean. <laughs> the, what, you didn't the, what was that guy that was running against uh uh Reagan the second time? Dukakis? Dukakis? Did you vote for Dukakis? <laughs> Do I have to answer that question? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's move on. <laughs> way i wasn't necessarily a fan of reaganomics you weren't a fan of reaganomics yeah of course i was i was 18 at that time so you know okay I was in college and a rebel but oh yeah. right right um yeah i yeah i happen to really like reagan i think he was uh also he i think um another thing i really liked about him is the sense of optimism that he brought i think that's a uh, kind of important in a in a in a figure like in a leader figure to have that optimism like i that's i think this typical of the 80s to have the kind of the hearts that's missing a lot of times nowadays to have the the hearts of positive vision um and jokes he used to collect soviet jokes i love that <laughs> he would that's funny he would use Soviet jokes in, in his speeches sometimes, like actual jokes that he would uh, collect from uh, from the Russian people. 
you know? That's, well, it's interesting because you said you were born in 85. Yeah, yeah, I was born in a, uh, Yugoslavia. So you actually were born in the Soviet Union. No, 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 I was born in Yugoslavia, which was separate uh, communist thing. It wasn't as okay. intense as Soviet Union, but. Uh, so it was like Soviet Union light? <laughs> uh in a way we had we had our camps but it wasn't nearly as intense okay as soviet union you know okay. um like the joke says um uh there, there were two people talking in russia and one asked the other do you think this is full communism you think we reached it and the other guy's like no things are gonna get a lot worse <laughs> so and that's that's basically not communism in a nutshell i think uh but let's move on to something um, critical, you mentioned critical thinking skills. What, what do you think the comparison between critical thinking and, and critical theory that's uh, pretty prevalent nowadays in, in universities and colleges? I, I don't know. You don't know? Mm-hmm. Oh, you don't, you don't teach um, stuff, I guess, that's influenced by critical theory. No. Okay. Okay. Probably good for you then. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, tell me what it is. Tell me the theory. Well, they're basically uh, cynical theories. Like, um, for example, um, one of the uh, odd branches of critical theory would say, uh, let's say you have, uh, it has to do a lot with race and stuff. Um, we had to read, um, in my university, we had to read a book called uh, why, why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And uh, it was kind of sad because in the book, it said that, uh, to paraphrase that white people are racist, even if they don't think they are, which I thought was kind of um, inexcusable. But I'll give you an example of, of the cynical theory uh, syndrome that's... Uh, um, because it's all based on interpretation. And so let's say, let's say two people walk into a store and one is white and one is black. So I put forth to you, who, who would you go to first? Who would you attend to? If I was a clerk, you mean? Yeah. It took, well, if two people walked in in the exact same time, I mean, I would serve the person who walked in first. Okay. But what if you have to make a decision? Let's say. I honestly, just, just I would for the sake go, of uh, just for the sake I, of. Uh, it, it'll probably sound bad, but I would probably serve whoever was female first, and then serve the male. I okay. I, I do have a bias. Honestly, I would probably okay. turn towards female first. They're both females. One is white. Oh. One is black. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Whoever looked like they were the most anxious, I guess. I don't okay. Know. So, okay. Um, so the way it goes, if, if you went, if you pick the, the white person, then the theory would, you know, go revert to, you know, you're racist because you went to the white person first. But if you chose the black person, they would say, oh, you didn't trust the black person that they would, uh, you thought they may, might steal something or something. So you, you might still be a racist choice. So here's a cynicism, like anything anything uh, you choose could be interpreted in a way as cynical as, you know, as a bad thing. So um, um, I don't think that's critical thinking. I think that's, uh, that's model thinking in a way, you know? So 
I don't know. It's getting so intensely politicized. I just want to go to university and learn about classics and all that. And now they're badgering me with politics. I'm like, I'm doing theater. Stop me. <laughs> Stop with this. Yeah, but theater, actually theater can be very political. Oh, yeah. I, I've realized that there's... Throughout of, time, right. that was a primary way to spread well, political propaganda on one hand, depending on the place and time, but also to express political ideology or political ideas that maybe you couldn't express in other ways. Theater has been used politically for, yeah, theater isn't going to get you out of politics, sorry. Well, economics is also a little bit political. political and Economics uh, is very political. And Krugman wrote the textbook, so obviously, and he, he writes for the New York Times. Um, yeah, well, uh, speaking of theater, which where would you say the theater has been very um, uh, successful in, in changing the populist opinion on something? Oh, wow. Well, one example in the U.S., um, of course, Rent. I don't know how familiar you are with that um, show, but that certainly was part of the thing the whole, the whole culture around Rent, the show, helped us to, um, to greater acceptance of GLBTQ plus okay. community. That's interesting. Uh, so this is a, but this is a recent thing. Rent, Rent isn't that recent. Like in the last 10 years? What year Rent was out? Definitely not in the last 10 years. No, Rent was out late 90s, early 2000s, I think. Okay. But uh, okay, uh, the, what, what criticism I put forth, this is uh, actually for my, uh, one of my presentations is like, well, how many people actually see the show? And if they see the show, mm -hmm. then they'd have to also, because not, it's, this, a show is not a lecture. So mm -hmm. usually you don't explicitly say what your message is, it's implied. So you have to also get the message. And then furthermore, at the end, there has to be like, you have to also change your opinion or take an action. So these, these three filters uh, would leave very small percentage of people in my opinion. And that's what I put the uh, forth on the professor and then and yeah, was kind of received. Oh, why? Why am I doing theater if it can't cause change? <laughs> she was a bit like, I don't know, almost taken aback. Like, <laughs> it's a great point, though, yeah. and and something that you have to consider when you, uh, when you consider theater, especially today. I don't know what it's like where you are, but definitely in the United States, you have to be of a certain socioeconomic level to be able to afford to go to see a theater production. Really? So like, yeah, a significant portion of the population may not be able to see at least the most recent shows. Of course, there's trickle down. So there's a point yeah. in time at which a high school will be able to do a show, right? Because it, the royalties are inexpensive enough where then it's more accessible to the majority of the population if high schools can afford to do a certain show right you know, and anyone can go see it at that point but but well, that takes because i'm in uk i once went when i went to london i i paid like i'm poor but at that time i was like i'm i just want to see a show like in a in a good theater so i paid like 90 dollars to see a, a show with damien lewis that's an actor that was in band of brothers i don't know if you saw that series and he was 
he was amazing. Didn't didn't go off the stage once in two hours. Wow, it was impressive. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but uh, I was sitting next to uh, a lady that was um, uh, she she was like my age, and uh, she looked like high like what they would call really upper class in England. She was like uh, training to be a doctor, and I was there, you know coming from scotland living in a in a hostel so <laughs> completely different classes of people maybe that's more normal in uk i don't know i guess in us less people attend theater i don't think it's such a big thing uh, well a lot of people attend theater but it's expensive it's not it's not the the cost is high even for so we have like broadway obviously um right. you know a show will start on Broadway, for example. And then the tickets are extremely expensive and very limited because, you know, only so many people can go to a show per night right. in a Broadway theater. But then they go on tour, what is called a touring company. So then that same show will take a, a cast and go out throughout the country. And those sh shows are a little bit more, a little bit less expensive, but they're still not cheap. Like, what, are we talking like $150 or more? Yeah, well, a hundred bucks. Yeah, I was. That's what people pay to see an NBA game. I've, if they really wanted to, they could go. <laughs> well, I don't have any comment about sports because oh. we could do a whole nother podcast show about <laughs> yeah. my opinion about sports. But um, yeah, I, I don't even know the cost of what a sporting event would be. Well, I, I once went to um, years ago I went to Los Angeles and I paid. Um, $150 and it wasn't even a great seat I was in the middle like I was quite far away from the action you know well and and uh, music concerts are extremely expensive too just mm. to give you an example to see um Fleetwood Mac was $300 per ticket yeah well I think it's interest as well I think more people are interested in seeing um I don't know. And back back then, back in the day, it was Backstreet Boys, and now it's uh, I don't know Ariana or whatever. Or who, who I don't know. I I can't even think who who people are listening to right now. Rihanna. I don't uh, know. I got Pearl Jam tickets. I was waiting for like twenty five years to see Pearl, Pearl Jam. Jam. Wow. And I finally got Pearl Jam tickets, and the pandemic happened, and I didn't get to see Pearl Jam after waiting twenty five years to get tickets. But it's probably it was more than three hundred dollars. It was very expensive, and I had to buy. Well, I didn't have to. We chose to buy two—one for me and one for my husband—and it got canceled because of the pandemic. So ah. I still haven't seen Pearl Jam. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen any bands in the eighties? The eighties was a good time. Have you seen Simple Minds or anything like that? Oh, was are you kidding me? You name a band in the eighties, and I saw them. I was in call. I was in high school and college in the eighties. I saw okay. every band. I saw a number of them twice. Simple Band is from Scotland, if I'm not mistaken. And Simple were, Minds are awesome in concert. They were awesome? Yeah. They were wow. from Scotland. Yeah, they were awesome. So yeah. who was the best from what, you know, experience? Oh, my God. Uh, so uh, two, two that I can name off the top of my head, Peter Gabriel, mm -hmm. phenomenal. David Bowie. Oh, yeah. David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Awesome. Uh, Depeche Mode. Depeche Mode I saw twice. Uh, the mm -hmm. Cure. I mean, 
you name the band, I I saw a lot of bands. Right. In the 80s. Yeah. I mean, we were kids and back then the tickets weren't that expensive. Mm. And we were really close, like where I went to college, halfway between St. Louis and Chicago. So we would just drive down St. Louis, drive up to Chicago. There's no, you know, when you're a kid, it's no big deal. You know, uh, was Chicago a safer city in the 80s than it is now? I Well, I was in 18, 19, 20, 21. Um, I just walked around. I did not feel any fear at all in Chicago. I don't, right. I don't know what it's like today because I live in Arizona now. So I, I'm right. not familiar with that part of the country as much as I was back then. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't feel uncomfortable. Of course, you know, you, when you're 20, you don't feel like you're going to die either, ever. <laughs> right. I think it's that, that part of uh, when you're young, you feel like you're not, um, you're not ever going to grow old in a way you feel invincible. Um, exactly. Yeah. So you're not really in touch with your mortality at that point. <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless you get crippled or something, then you really get, yeah. or, or you get into an accident. Yeah. Um, I actually was in a really bad car accident when mm. I was, God, how old was I? Uh, 21, 20, right. between 20 and 21. Yeah. The other oh, guy wow. died. You nearly, the other girl died. The, the man who was driving the other car, car died. Yeah. Oh man. A yeah, highway, he I imagine. Decapitated. He was decapitated. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was horrifying. Yeah, I broke my back. I, I fractured my L3 vertebrae. How long did that take to heal? About four or five months. Okay. And bodies are resilient. Unless you get decapitated, then it's... Um... Yeah, I know. It was horrifying. Did you, did you see that, you know, the aftermath of? Fortunately, I did not see it because I was being whisked away myself. Yeah. In the ambulance. But, you know, I can't imagine people in wars and stuff. They see horrible things, even as children. I don't, uh, you know, and, and what you were saying earlier about therapy and, uh, and seeing people that are living in um, inner chaos, I would say that's, um, I said one of my former guests, Theodore Darmenpol, he had to start writing because uh, the things he was seeing was so awful that he, he found bottles of alcohol from the former guy that was working there <laughs> because that's how the former guy coped with it. He, he was drinking. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And that's, the, the, I mean, a primary reason why people write is to deal with their own trauma, to deal with their pain. Mm. to figure out life yeah you know we uh, most people write for themselves first and then to entertain or educate or uh inspire others right um is that your reason for writing is like almost like you can't not write you have to write yeah exactly i think a lot of writers have that feeling and sometimes it wakes me up. Well, not sometimes, a lot of times <laughs> it, wakes, it wakes me up and I just jump out of bed and start writing because it's there. It's the muse that comes. Yeah, it's just there. It's like, I, I equate it to a faucet mm. and most of the time it's just drip, 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 which is um, manageable, right? It, when it comes out, drip, 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 drip. 
then you have a normal life and then you write in the morning or whenever your writing period is and then you live and it's just that you know in the back of your mind the drip 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 but sometimes the faucet gets turned on and it comes out like a spray and then you're just it has to all come out and those are the periods of time and i know a lot of people experience this not just me who are writers where you'll write an entire feature length screenplay in two or three days or you'll write an entire novel in a week because it's just there and it pours out like a faucet i heard that sylvester stallone wrote rocky in three days yeah because it's just there it has to come out that's so impressive um i don't think people don't give him really the credit because he he the way he looks or maybe because he's an actor so they're like ah but he's a he's an excellent writer yeah yeah. Well, that's that was an iconic. It still is an iconic movie. Hmm. Um. So you like action movies as well? Oh, I love action movies. <laughs> so I, I imagine them. your favorite. Like John were... Wick. I I can't even oh, tell wow. you how many times I've watched John Wick. Love. I love revenge movies. The Terminator too. Uh. Yeah, I like the Terminator, <laughs> but I prefer like a real action hero like uh adventure kind of action like uh, yeah 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 uh I, I feel like john wick john wick one was the perfect movie to me in so many ways really? love it love that movie yeah i think i've seen it once but I, it was kind of okay i think it was about his dog they killed his dog and he would yeah. yeah but you know keanu is such an iconic actor i think it has to do with you know what it's not just acting it's it's the it's the character of the person. So uh, I think the perfect example of that is Jack Nicholson because the base of his character is already flamboyant. So he can, for a role, he can turn it up or turn it down. And uh, that, yeah. because always, you're always working with the, you, you're, you're the, uh, the instrument in acting. And like, you find- I love Jason, Jason Statham. Mm. You can't keep me away from him. You cannot keep me away from him. If he because, has a movie, I'm there. <laughs> because of testosterone, the way he looks or the action? I just or love everything about him. And I love the movies that he chooses to do. I like the emotional experience. Like there's a movie he did called Parker. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Love that movie. I've seen that probably 30 times. Really? Love that movie. I just love that emotional experience of what he goes through in that movie. Mm. Um. Something else I wanted to ask you about the 80s. Um, you probably know about this. Uh, th- there was a lot of, uh, or ironically, there was a movie with Jack Nicholson. I've never seen it, but I heard it's credited for uh, something that I'll mention next. Uh, the, there was the one flew over the cuckoo's nest or something. That, yeah. And, and bo- books about that, that made it seem like people were uh doctors and psychiatrists for abusing people in state hospitals and then in the 80s unfortunately they released a lot of these mentally ill people on the streets um and i think it's still america has still not recovered from that in my opinion (laughs) that's a whole nother discussion about deinstitutionalization yeah so there are two different issues one flew over the cuckoo's nest as the story and all and deinstitutionalization, yeah, is a whole separate idea. But insofar as yes, that did happen to people in mental institutions. They were 
um, tortured and abused. Um, and that's well documented. That happened a lot. Um, well, are you referring to the uh, electroshock uh, therapy and all that that they used to use back in the day? Or yes, and but but also um, giving people lobotomies, which happened in one. I don't. You didn't see one flew of the cuckoo's nest. No, I'm kind of scared yeah. to watch it. <laughs> well, I don't want to give it away if anyone hasn't okay. watched it. But yeah, the, there is a part of that where it includes a lobotomy too. So. Um, but but at the same time, like, okay, yeah, methods were crude, but then they were, um, I think it wasn't like, it's a thing where I don't think they were intentionally trying to uh, uh, hurt people. It's just that their methods were so crude back then compared to where we are now as far as well, dealing with that, Yeah, those are two different issues. So yeah. yes, yes, we didn't know as much then. So we were using methods that were crude, true. Yeah. But also, yes, there are, a lot of documented cases of pe people actually being emotionally and physically abused. Okay. Yeah. But Taken I, advantage of sexually, oh. molested, you know, yeah, many types of abuse. And those are documented as well. So both sides of the coin. Right. Well, but, but if we, we take that and put it to Catholic church and that would be the equivalent of this, this, um, like, uh, having um the churches taken down and all that because of four percent of priests are abusing or three two percent or whatever it is um so you can always find anecdotal cases wherever there's a big quantity of people in an institution but i feel like the uh, i think the important thing is in general is this helping the mentally ill people or would they be better served if they were on oh. the streets so the the reason why people were why the movement was toward the <laughs> okay the, oh, yeah. the reason why there was a movement toward deinstitutionalization was to have a more humane treatment and and what the what they had in mind the goal was what's the least restrictive environment that someone could be in so for example, if someone is schizophrenic, but they're being controlled with medication, what's the least restrictive environment could they be in? Could they live in a group home rather than an institution? Could they live with family members rather than being an institution? So what, what, can, what can we do to help them to be out into the community, be functioning member of society, but still be able to have the services that they need to, to help them with their, their mental issues? Mm. The problem came in, so in, in theory, that's an excellent idea, right? We, we don't want to have people in a more restrictive environment that they need to be in. We want people to be able to be in the community and to re-enter society. But the problem comes in where if the services aren't there to support them at all. So right. yeah, if we're putting people out into the society out in and the streets there are any in some group cases homes, and they don't have relatives and then they're out in the street because they don't have they don't then they don't have mm -hmm. an institution and they don't have any support services and they have nothing so then they're homeless in the street right um well i i've uh, read some uh, psychiatrists that uh, said that used to treat people in state hospitals and um he's he's passed away since obviously because this was a while ago but he said that back in the day when there were state hospitals that he never saw a patient that he didn't think deserved to be there, all had 
problems, mental or otherwise uh, severe, and they all needed to be there <laughs> for for their safety or the safety of others. You know, if some of them, you know, if they take them off the medications, they become violent or whatever, and or or a lot of them wouldn't be able to take care of themselves. Um, I, I do think this is an important issue that a lot of people don't know about. So I don't know. I, well, this is the first time I brought it up. Yeah. And the, and the other issue too that you alluded to is medication compliance. So mm. you, you, unless they're court ordered, you can't force someone to continue with their medication. And there are a number of situations in which people who have a mental illness are prescribed a medication that will keep their symptoms under control. And then they choose to not continue with taking the medication because of the side effects, for example. Right. So when they choose to take themselves off the medication, then that's when they will start having those symptoms again and may not be able to function as well as they can in society being on the medication. What about the issue of how do they deal with uh, forced institutionalization? Is that something that was taken more or less off the table in the 80s as well? No, no. No? Um, you, uh, there are people who are court ordered to be in in an institution. I mean, they don't stay as long as... Stays in mental institutions have been greatly reduced. So right. you, you may not have a... Per if a person is in danger to themselves or others, a law enforcement officer can require them to be put in an institution. I mean, it's a law that a, a police officer, for example. Yeah, but a police officer them. won't be able to, they're not trained. They can't go on the street and be like this homeless person, he's schizophrenic and he's he's potentially a danger. Well, how would they know? Like, <laughs> So there are certain situations in which hmm. you know, like for example, right. when I was a mental health counselor, as I told you in the beginning of my career, mm -hmm. um, I worked at a, a place where we did mental health counseling and a man walked into the building. He sat down across from me and he said, I have a gun in my car. My plan is to leave your office and shoot myself in the parking lot with the gun that's in my car. Oh my God. And I said, excuse me for just a moment. I went to my boss. I repeated that. My boss said, let me call the police. I went back to my office and I said, tell me a little bit about what's going on. We waited for the police to come. The man said he had a gun. He was going to use it. He was going to shoot himself. So in that case, a police officer came and took him to the mental hospital because he, it was a danger to himself. He right. said he was going to kill himself. So but yeah, no, there, there are obvious situations where something right. like no but but yeah i i believe that but uh, if if a police officer would see somebody in the street this almost and they're behaving normally at the time or you know forcing themselves to be kind of normal uh, i would i would think it's almost impossible to tell is this person all right or you know yeah, if they couldn't if, yeah it's uh it's very hard and i think uh police officers nowadays they've been uh, I think the respect towards the police has been very much downgraded since last summer, unfortunately. Like, it's, I mean, that's a tough job. So think about this. Hmm. From everything that the United States has gone through, right, um, since the start of the pandemic, at yeah. the same time, we had all of those issues with all of the 
um, you know, BLM riots, and all that, yeah. everything you could think of happened in our country, all like it all came together. Who, as a young person today, say you're a 25 year old, would you say, oh yeah, I really think that I wanna be a police officer now after seeing all that and knowing, knowing that you're, you're gonna put your life on the line, you're not sure, you know, you're not, every day the, the police have to make a decision me yeah. or them, that person who's doing whatever they're doing, I, you get called, you get called, right? Because something's happening. You respond to the call. You're not sure you have to make a split second decision. It's me or that person. Does yeah. that person have a gun? Is that gun pointed at me? Who wants to be in that situation? And what damned if you do and damned if you don't, if you make the wrong decision, you know, your life is probably over. I don't know what kind of a person would want to have that responsibility. I certainly wouldn't. Right. It would and be you, difficult. It's a difficult job to begin with. And now it's made even worse. It's amplified the difficulty of that, that position of that job. Right. And anything, if you're a white police officer and, uh, you know, if you harm a black or non, or non person anyway, you might be, and not only, or you might be fired, but you, your reputation for your whole life might be, might be stained because there, there will be political implications, this and that. It's, um, and then there was a whole, um, I think there was very popular last year, the movement uh, against the, the uh, defunding the police as well. But that was also that was from a, the fringes. That was a very bad way to phrase it <laughs> defund the police was not a good way to say what i feel like they were trying to say mm -hmm. i think it's a good idea to say police officers need to respond when there is a person in danger or crime the things that we imagine that police officers are there to do yeah what we don't want them to have to do is be in situations, as you were talking about, where they're not trained to respond. So we don't want them to necessarily go into a situation, for example, where a young, where a young boy, for, uh, 13 or 14 year old boy is autistic and you know the parents are having issues with behavior control and behavior management. They call the police to help them. A police officer isn't trained to deal with someone who's autistic. And they may use a means to control that person, that teenager, that's not appropriate because they don't know how to handle someone who's autistic. Right. But it depends uh, what, the, what the kid is doing. If he's holding a knife towards his parents or, you know, it's, but, you know, you have like these, these uh, cops that they, they come and you have, they have to make a split decision based on what they see. They don't know the context, anything. And I but think, it would be nice for yeah. us to have a different set of people that could respond to other types of things that we don't necessarily need the police to respond to. Have people that can come in. We have, we have a situation with someone who's mentally ill or someone who um, is a person with autism or even domestic disputes. You may not necessarily well, need to have a police officer depending but, on the level of the... But, but Karen, how, how is anybody on the street going to know if somebody is... Uh, in a not necessarily a person somebody. on the street, but the person who's making the call. So if you're in a situation where, right, you know, you, you, you're 
Do you want your son shot? No, but you want help in controlling his behavior. So call someone who's trained in that area rather, maybe rather than a police officer. I don't know. I'm just right. throwing that out there. I think that's that was the impression that I got. Not necessarily defund the police. We need well, police I, officers. Who doesn't not want to have a police mm, officer if you're being robbed or, I, you know? I don't think that was misstating. I think some of them actually tried to disband the police. There was actually, but some well, of them wanted to put, to put social workers. There's the other side of it as well, obviously. But um, it's either way, I, I think it's, uh, it know, sets a I'm, bad I precedent. Mean, it takes common sense. Yeah. Let's have some common sense. If a bank is being robbed, you don't want to send a social worker in there. No. I want someone with a gun who's going to deal with a bank robber, right? right. You want someone who's trained in emergency situation in an emergency situation. I want a police officer to deal with that. I don't want somebody from the general public to deal with that. But yeah, in the situation with a, a, the teenager with autism, maybe we don't need a police officer for that type of a thing. You know, I, I just well, think- Well, well what if the, a person with autism is with a gun in a bank and nobody knows that person is autistic? No, but I'm saying- I'm sure there I, have been many bank robbers <laughs> <laughs> who are people with autism. <laughs> right. But, but the point is people will not know. People only know what the person is doing, what it appears and what it is, is the person with, with a gun. So you need the police. I think- uh, I don't know how I'm not, I'm, I have to say my faith is so low in social workers at the escalating uh, violent situation that it's uh, less than 0.1% in my opinion. <laughs> that's, that's just me. Maybe I'm cynical, but I, I just don't see it. <laughs> well, if a person's appropriately trained, the, the problem may be that we're not appropriately, you could take a person. Okay. Say you have someone who they have an option to go to the police academy or go to another kind of a, academy where we're training to, people to respond to mm. crisis situations, but not necessarily with guns. So right. they have, they may have all the training that they need to deal with a crisis situation that isn't necessarily going to end in violence with a gun because there are, there are situations you know, that aren't to that level. Yeah. And then, yeah, sometimes it does seem it, it comes, it escalates too quickly. And uh, yeah, I mean, in some ways, the, the British police is, is the other extreme. They try to, they try to talk, talk more, um, you know, try to de-escalate de more um, and they're more using a, more of a soft approach. And sometimes that works, but I, I imagine in a country uh, with the second amendment that's a bit different because you're dealing with potentially you're dead you know using you using a soft approach and then that would fail because the person would drop their gun so i think the context in u.s is different so um well that's what i'm saying who would want who would want the job of pulling over so you're a highway patrol person and yeah. you're pulling over cars Every time you pull over someone, you're in that situation. Is that person going to shoot me? Every single time. There's Every no way time. in the United States for you to be able to tell necessarily. Oh. I People would know I have a gun because mine is registered. But how would you know if someone had a gun? Maybe if they, you know, I, I went through yeah, training. You, you can buy you know, it. I have a concealed carry license. Right. So people know that I have a gun. But there are plenty of people who don't go through that training, who don't get concealed carry license, maybe not even have a registered gun. 
Yeah, but isn't that legal to have just a gun buy buy a gun off somebody in in some states and just you have can a gun? Do a private, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. You can yeah. do a private sale from. It was shocking to me when I learned that in the United States, in a lot of states, the rules are state by state. But yeah, you can go to a gun show, or you can go. I can walk out and sell my gun to my neighbor. Mm. Do you, do you know that show uh, King of the Hill, the animated show? Um, I know what I know what it is. Uh, I haven't watched it though. I love it. I like it. <laughs> it's it's so because it's set in in Texas. Um, so um, just to set the scenario, in one, one episode, the wife was selling books, and nobody was buying books. She was she thought she was gonna make, she was you know she this is gonna fulfill her purpose, and she's gonna make money doing this. She was making no money. Nobody was coming in. And then the neighbor had guns. And then she got the bright idea, well, the, you know, have, have the neighbor in there and he would be selling guns. And sooner or later, soon the, uh, the store was just selling mostly guns. And then, then the inspector came and then they came with the idea, yeah, these people are, these people are buying books and they just get complimentary gun. And then the inspector was like, okay. So, <laughs> so then a lot of people would be buying guns, but but just take the the compulsory book that that was just there, and you know. <laughs> and, but yeah, it's funny because like, I think uh, maybe especially in Texas that there is an interest in guns and all that. So um, yeah, okay, let's let's talk uh, lastly about books because um, this is very important. I I feel like. Um, the classics and the great books of the Western world have been, the interest in them have been on decline for a long time. Um, and you have a theory about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of theories. Right. Um, so I feel like um, people have much shorter attention spans. Mm. Um, people are reading less they, the things they read, they want to be shorter, quicker, bite-sized pieces of information. People like watching YouTube videos to learn information more than they like reading to find yeah. out information. You know, if you can watch a five or 10 minute video on YouTube, then you don't have to read a book about it. They want the right. shortened version. Is there a cliff note for that? <laughs> Do I have to read the whole book? Can you give me a synopsis of it instead? Right. Well, yeah, that's that's the our generation in a nutshell. We want things, we want it fast. Well, and and we've had a, a, as an online instructor um, and also someone who builds curriculum, we've had to make it so that people have different experiences online every 15, 20, 30 minutes. So they have a short article to read, then a video, then another short article, then an exercise to keep people engaged and stimulated because they don't want to sit there for two or three hours reading a few chapters from a textbook. Mm. You know, they want different types of information presented in different ways, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like um, it stimulates different parts of the brain and it's good for different types of learners because not everybody learns from um, you know, reading written information. So right. some people do learn better from watching a video or hearing something, you know, um, right. or, or engaging in an exercise. We have people actually going out and doing 
exper experiencing things and then writing a reflective paper on those experiences because people learn by doing things too. Right. So, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but yeah, the classics, um, classic literature has definitely been neglected. I don't think people are even reading contemporary books as much. Right. So the reading overall is on, on the down and texting is way up and watching. I mean, now it's like, the, first it was YouTube and now it's like TikTok, just uh, one minute maximum. <laughs> They're know. getting short. They have Instagram reels and it's like, you can't get over 30 seconds. Wow, that's short. They're 15 seconds or 30 seconds. That's your maximum. You have to really? get your message. I'm not on TikTok. I thought it was one minute. It's even less. Wow. Oh, Instagram. The Instagram reels. Mm. Instagram reels are 15 or 30 seconds long. So wow. that's your maximum. Yeah. Yeah. Your do message you, in 30 seconds. Do, do you think the culture in the West in general is on decline? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's no there's no is hesitation that a question? is that really a question or is that rhetorical no is i'm really curious i'm hoping it wasn't but no i know I, I i fear it is yeah i fear it well, is throughout history right there is a rise and fall of civilizations you tell me do you think we're on the rise or on the fall um been falling for a while yeah for the past uh 10 years ish or more 15 i i think my theory is that it all started in the late 60s and it's all coming to a head now <laughs> uh, all the like what i mentioned before critical theories this is a derivative of postmodernism and some of the other stuff that that started in the late 60s to 70s so and uh, now it's um in fashion in a lot of academia and um, it might take a while before we're out of it because it just, everybody, a lot of people um, are really into it, so. Well, I feel like things are a pendulum and they swing and they swing and they swing, but eventually they tend to come back to the center. You think? The Roman Empire didn't didn't fall back to the yeah, center. Yeah, that's fall, a whole other, That's the rise and fall <laughs> of a civilization. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know for U.S. Do you, what's the best period? I'll, I'll put you on the spot. What's the best period in U.S.? Well, in my lifetime, or just in U.S. in general? Uh, both. Let's say both. Oh man. Well. <laughs> I'm a product of the 80s, so I I really loved being a, a person, a young person in the 80s was wonderful. I can't imagine being in my 20s, in my teens, I was in my teens and my 20s in the 80s. I can't imagine being a teenager or in my 20s today with social media. Mm. Uh, the, the amount of pressure and just the 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 way in which you're constantly being watched and, and everything is so outward, outwardly facing. There's so little um, look inward. People don't necessarily uh, have any introspection. Uh, at, well, not any, but they, they don't have as much introspection as we tended to have back then. Everything is about what I look like. What is this gonna? When you go on a vacation now, everyone cares more about what's their Instagram shot than actually looking at the site and learning about its history and why it's significant, why it's important. 
The first thing everybody thinks about is how is this going to look on my Instagram? Where's, where am I going to get the best Instagram shot? Not why is this significant? Why is this important? What do I, what can I learn from being here? Those things are getting lost. It's all about what, how do I look? How is this going to make me look? The the image. It's all about image. image. Yeah. Yeah. Even I I saw that even in sports, there's a young player, um, place for Miami Heat and uh, he had a great first season then his second season he was already trying on social media to become a star even before he's made a career like he he had an okay season and now his second season dipped because he wants to become more, you know somebody already on social media he is somebody already by playing but he wants to he wants to cash in already and it's I don't know it's um, yeah what I think uh, hopefully it's not the the decline hopefully the the west will rise again but um it's tough it's tough. <laughs> it's, what do you think okay let's end on a positive note how how do we bring the west back how how what's the what's the sign of hope do you see any hope like do you see a student that's reading a lot and you're like yeah this is this is the hope for the future yeah, I mean, I see, I, I do see young people who are very um, ambitious and enthusiastic and, and uh, very aware and socially conscious. And I think that's great. Mm. Um, I, I like to see young people who are active, active in their communities and um, really care about what's happening in the world and happenings in society. Um, and there are young people who are doing that. So I feel like that's very um, inspiring, but I also see the same number of young people who the bikini shot on Instagram is like their whole Instagram is just bikini shots. Really? That's, that's the thing that you care about in the world right now is how you look, how you're going to look in your bikini on Instagram. Even when I was a young person and I had a bikini body, I wouldn't have put a bikini body on Instagram. (laughs) You know, I, my mind wasn't in that place. I cared more about what I, what could I learn today? You know, I, yeah, I'm a but, bookworm. I've always been a bookworm. But you weren't born in 2003. So it's a different upbringing, I guess. Very different. I guess. I don't know. That's why I said I'm glad I was raised when I was raised because, you know, it allowed me to prioritize different things, I guess. So you're saying just like in that movie, Fiddler on the Roof, you need some tradition, some some traditional values. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily think that all traditional values need to be, you know, put for, moved sure, for. Sure, sure. You know, I, I, I like to think that men and women could have an equal footing. I, I don't want to go back to the day where, you know, I had to wear a dress and a high length collar and. Sure, <laughs> sure. Know. Yeah. But some things were obviously good for yeah, but i i admire the suffragettes you know i i glad i have the right to vote you know i don't want to go back to necessarily yeah those well, times. yeah i'm not saying that but uh there yeah obviously for for me okay you didn't say what was the best period in history though in america like overall oh man <laughs> there's a lot of time periods that i really like um, but I feel like I really liked the Roaring Twenties. Mm. Um, oh yeah, That's even though choice. Prohibition, you know. <laughs> but people, 
I, I've done a lot of research about prohibition, but people were actually drinking more during prohibition than yep. <laughs> prior to that. Um, but as far as arts and culture, that was an absolutely magnificent time in our country for music and literature and the arts. And um, I, I really like that period of time. Um, as far as flourishing, you know, flourishing art scene and, and cultures, I, I think the 20s, 30s, even into the 40s, um, I really like, there's a lot of things I like about the arts and uh, music and culture. And well, By the way, did you happen to know when was the year that uh, Tokyo wrote uh, Democracy in America? Must have been 18 something. Because he, he seemed to be very impressed with the, with the American people in general. And um, yeah, I feel that period, maybe uh, the, the going to the West where the West, there was nothing in the West. I think, I think I would love that period, just riding the horses. But also I feel like the, uh, after the end of World War II until 1965, that period, about 20 years, I think that was awesome. <laughs> oh, there's a period of time. I live in Arizona, right? Mm. So the, the West, literally the wild West. Yeah. It still is in many ways. Um, the history here, as far as that period of time, like just post-Civil War to the 1890s is incredible. Like all the people coming West and especially the, the old mining towns, absolutely love going to the old mining towns and just seeing that, that history and culture is phenomenal to me. It's one of my favorite times in American history as far as historical um, you know, the history of the country and, and just being immersed in a historical period. I love, yeah, post, post Civil War, you know, eight, late 1860s to the 1890s, that westward expansion was a really interesting time period. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I think we had a really good discussion. Um, do you think uh, we've, uh, do you want anything, any last words before we part ways? No, thank you so much for having me as a guest. It's been an interesting conversation. We touched on a lot of different topics. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being on. And uh, thank you everybody for listening and watching the podcast. <laughs>